Good morning. It is great to be with you today on this overcast day. I didn't think it was supposed to rain in Southern California. There's a song about that. I feel like I'm living in Seattle recently, but it's always a cheerful time to be with you. I want to say thank you for welcoming We've been worshiping with you for several weeks now, and it's a delight for me to serve you in opening the word uh, this, this morning. Um, we're going to be zeroing in on the words of Exodus chapter 33, verse 18, that says, show me your glory. But I want to read the whole context here, and the passage before us is Exodus 33, verse 17, and it flows into chapter 34 and verse 19. I hope it's very familiar to us. This is truly a glorious portion of the Mosaic Covenant. Let's hear God's word together. Beginning in verse uh, 17, the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. And Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I'll show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me and you shall stand there on the rock and it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now the Lord said to Moses, Cut out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you shattered. So be ready by morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain." No man is to come up with you, nor let any man be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds may not graze in front of the mountain. So he cut out two stone tablets like the former ones. And Moses rose up early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him. And he took two stone tablets in his hand. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Moses made haste to bow low before the earth, uh, toward the earth and worship. He said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your own possession. Let us ask God's blessings. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are our God. We thank you for the gift of your Son, the Lord Jesus, in whom we have all life, abundant life. We thank you for the gift of your Spirit, who has inspired and given us this very word. We pray, Lord, now that you would meet with us, that you would teach us, that our hearts would be wide open to you. And again, Lord, that we would see you and your glory in your house this day. Fill our hearts, we pray now, with your presence. May we be able to go from this place today knowing that we have truly worshiped the living and only God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray these good things in Jesus' name. 
Amen. One of my favorite statements comes from the author A.W. Tozer, who said that what we think about God is the most important thing about us. Nothing comes close to that. He says that no people, no individual rises above that standard. Your views of God are going to dictate your life, your outlook, your thoughts, and your activities. Moses here, in this passage, pleads with God that he would see the glory of the Lord more fully. His heart, his desire was to see the majesty of God, even though he had seen great glory already. At this point in the book of Exodus, he had seen the glory of God in the burning bush back in chapter 3. Certainly, he had seen the glory of the Lord in in the various plagues that were poured out upon uh, Egypt, upon the gods that Pharaoh and the people there worshipped. He saw great glory in the deliverance of the parting of the Red Sea, and the enemies, the, Pharaoh, uh, the army of Pharaoh, being destroyed there. Great glory could be seen in the fiery pillar by night, in the presence of the Lord, in the cloud by day that gave shade to the people. He saw the glory of the Lord in the water, the bitter water made sweet, and the manna daily delivered uh, to the people. And certainly, in the giving of the Ten Commandments, as God took Israel as His covenant people in Exodus 19 and 20. Now... He says, show me your glory, even though he had seen so much. And this tells us that we are to have that heart thirst to know God more deeply, to know his glory, and to seek him in in all ways. And so what we want to do here is focus upon this surpassing glory of God in this passage and throughout the scripture. And the first thing we want to do is to step back a little bit and think about what the glory of God is is, because his glory is unlike anything that we can really think about. What can we say of the glory of God except that he is thoroughly and fully and infinitely and eternally and completely and exhaustively glorious? Our God is infinite in glory, eternal in glory, unchangeable in glory. The words of Moses in the deliverance song of Exodus 15, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? His glory, His greatness, or what the word kavod, the Hebrew word has the idea of weightiness, of, um, of heaviness on account of who he is. A very rich, powerful man has a weight about him as he steps into a, a crowd or into the room. But God's heaviness, God's glory is unexplainable. God's glory is impenetrable. We cannot, we will not to all eternity fathom the riches and the heights and depths of the glory of an infinite God. His glory is indestructible. His glory is unchangeable. His glory is the very foundation of all His creation. And so that's the first point of our message. I want us to step back and consider God's own surpassing glory because of the uniqueness of it. And as we do so, I want you to chew on this quote from a man by the name of William Secker. I've been thinking about this a lot. He said, God and all that He has made 
is not more than God without anything he has made. God and all that he has made is not more than God without anything that he has made. In other words, God would be just as great and just as glorious if he did not create anything, if he did not save a single soul, if he did not make a single angel. The creation adds nothing to God and his glory. The creation subtracts nothing from God and his glory. Another fellow by the name of Meister of Eckhart, who was a medieval mystic, who I know next to nothing about, but I have a funny story about him that I will share during the question and answer time later. I have one funny story about Meister of Eckhart, and that's the extent. But he said this, outside of God, there is nothing but nothing. This is the exhaustive, immense totality of God in his glory. And everything that you have ever seen in his creation is because of him, in him, built in him, from him. Now, that the fact that there is nothing outside of God does not therefore mean that creation is a big fat zero. It does not mean that creation is a nothing, not at all. But the reality of all creation is built in and upon the God who made the world and all that is in it, who sustains the world and is sovereign over it. All his creation lives and moves and has its being in and of him. There is absolutely nothing apart from God. God is transcendent above all his works, even while he is imminent within them. He is here, and the whole universe is alive with his life. A.W. Tozer. God's transcendence over everything. God is never identifiable fully with the creature, and yet his imminence. Those are glorious truths of the nature of God filling all in all, and yet is sovereign over them. And that would be a whole sermon on its own. If you emphasize his transcendence in such a way as to push out his imminence, uh, then you uh, wind up being some kind of a deist, that God doesn't have anything to do with his creature. And if you emphasize his imminence, his closeness, and get rid of his transcendence, you fall into pantheism. But the Bible tells us that all of his works are filled with himself, with his glory. There is not a single atom that you and I could ever find that does not have written upon it, it is mine, says the Lord. Everything exists entirely because of this great and glorious God. John Calvin said that the whole creation was intended by God to be a theater of his divine glory, so that his glory would be seen, so that he might be known who is the author and the keeper of all things. The Bible, begun by Moses with creation, was so to render God visible to us in his works. There are sparks of his glory which glitter in everything, says Calvin. And so our Westminster Confession of Faith teaches this very reality, that God has all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself, 
and is alone in and unto himself all-sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which he has made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, and has most sovereign dominion over them, to do by them, for them, or upon them, whatsoever himself pleaseth. What a magnificent statement. This is no small God that has made us, that made the world. Now that is the surpassing glory of this God who is lending, as it were, his own self, his own glory in the making and keeping of his creation. This is the one with whom we have to do. But in that this world, God's world, has fallen through the sin of Adam and a curse has been raised upon it on account of our hands, God's glory, God's surpassing glory, is manifested now in a most wonderful way, in a very unique way, and that is a gracious, loving gospel way. And that's our second point. The surpassing glory is gospel glory, both in the Old Testament and in the New. Does it not strike you that as Moses pleads with God, that God responds with a profound yes? He says, I will show you my glory, but then proceeds to show him his goodness. Then proceeds to speak about his compassion, about being gracious to whom he will be gracious. He declares and shines forth to him in sovereign grace, showing mercy to sinners. In chapter 34, he begins this display of seeing his glory. How? How does he declare his glory? I will declare my name. And what is that name? Jehovah. Jehovah God. That is who I am. That speaks, again, about his faithful, covenant-keeping loyalty to his people. He is faithful to the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. He's compassionate and gracious, abounding, it goes on here to say, in loving kindness. That is one of my favorite words in all of the Hebrew. It's the word chesed that has the idea of full loyalty, commitment, tenderness, uh, mercy, and love. That's the commitment that God makes to every one of his people. This is all speaking of his grace. He is self-moved, which then is kept for thousands and thousands in Israel who have their millions and millions of iniquity, transgressions, and sins removed as a great cloud from their sky. So this is the point that we are making here under number two. The glory of His grace in His gospel is the chief glory of God now toward this world. God presents himself as this kind of God, this kind of glory, this kind of majesty. The chief glory of God now fixes upon his love, fixes upon the good news. I'm not saying here that his righteousness or his rectitude or his justice or his wrath are somehow not real, not at all. They are very real. In fact, it's those realities that have moved him to act so graciously and to deal with the the righteous wrath that our sins deserve. 
But look at the glory of His goodness here toward sinners. Is, he, is God equally delighted in judging the impenitent, those who chose to remain in their sins, as He is delighted in showing mercy and forgiveness to those who do not deserve it? And the answer clearly in Scripture, is no. Look at how freely God shows His love and His grace and mercy to sinners. But when it comes to His justice, when it comes to His wrath, He is slow to anger. He is long-suffering. He is not willing that, that sinners would perish. There's something in God that is restraining Him. And it speaks about His great grace and glory of love that is revealed in the gospel. I mean, just look at the setting of Exodus 33 and 34. All that the Lord had done for Israel in bringing them out of the house of bondage in Egypt culminates, all of it, in chapter 32 with the people of Israel rejecting the Lord and making a golden calf and worshiping it. Who would have expected that after that terrible apostasy from God, that you would have the contents then of chapters 33 and 34. This highlights the graciousness of God to those who had apostatized from Him and the covenant is renewed for their benefit. In fact, we feel the, the, the desert of their sin when God tells Moses, step aside, let me wipe all of these people out and I will start a new people with you. That's what we deserve. But God is unwilling to do that. God set that up to show, once again, His great grace, the glory of His grace, the surpassing glory of the gospel, His chief glory and purpose. And so He sets Moses before us as a mediator. He attains favor for this most wayward of people. And God forgives and brings forth His grace in this way. These are the riches, then, of grace that are found in the Old Testament and especially in the Mosaic Covenant. How some can come up with some kind of an other teaching in the Mosaic Covenant that somehow God is harsh, God is cruel. They're not reading this passage. The Mosaic Covenant is gracious through and through. Just the name Jehovah is filled with all goodness, grace, and mercy beyond measure. The names of God are all promises to us of His character and of His love. They are beyond compare from the very beginning. God's glory bursts the limits of language and of thought. Do you realize there is no name that we could possibly find in the human language, because we're so limited, that fully covers all that is in God. He is beyond expression in His majesty, in His glory. Every name is adequate. There's no name adequate to contain Him. And yet there's a sense in which every name is adequate to reveal Him. Augustine said it this way, All things can be said of God, but nothing can be said worthily of Him. Nothing is more widespread than this poverty of expression you are looking for a fitting name for him, you will not find it. You try to speak of him in some way, you find that he is everything. 
The Bible, do you not feel that as you read the scriptures, it's as though, as though the Holy Spirit is straining to bring forth language, rummaging, as it were, all throughout creation, to bring forth adequate expressions of the greatness of this God, that these things would be known and felt, and that we would act upon those things. And this seems to be the point of why God revealed himself, as he has in the Bible, progressively, and not as, why is it our Bibles don't begin with the Trinity? Why is it the Bible doesn't begin with Jesus coming as the incarnate Son of God? Because there's a progression that God wants us to review and to know. God presented himself in the Old Testament as the one only living and true God, as though he is saying to the world, stop worshiping all the false gods that your hands are making. And that's a message that is going to be with us through all of time. Because as Calvin said, our hearts are like little idle factories. We don't have proper views of God, and so we fall into idolatry. And so the Bible stands us up. Here's Israel placed, all these nations are around them, worshiping these bizarre gods like like Dagon and the Philistines. Can you imagine worshiping a fish god? I mean, I like fish, but man. So here, here is this message This is the one true God, Jehovah Elohim. God doesn't doesn't say to us, your impulse to worship is wrong. The problem is, is how you're worshiping and who you are worshiping. And so that's the message that we find here from the very outset. God is saying to us, be not conformed to the gods of this world, but be transformed by the glory of the Lord in the renewal of your minds that are fixed upon him of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Who do you glorify? What glory do you seek? What do you hunger for supremely? There is nothing that compares with the glory of God whom you are to glorify. He is your all in all, Jehovah Elohim. Psalm 106 verse 8 says, He saved them for His name's sake, talking about this Exodus event. The Presbyterian author Ralph Erskine wrote, Therefore improve his name in every case, for he has a name suiting every want, every need that you have. Do you need wonders to be wrought for you? His name is wonderful. Look to him to do so for his namesake. Do you need counsel and direction? His name is the counselor. Cast yourself on him and his name for this. Have you mighty enemies to debate with? His name is the mighty God. Seek that he may exert his power for his name's sake. Do you need his fatherly pity? His name is the everlasting Father. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those that fear him. Plead his pity for his name's sake. Do you need peace, external, internal, and eternal? His name is the Prince of Peace. Seek for his name's sake that he may create peace. O sirs, his name is Jehovah Rafi, the Lord, the healer and physician. Seek for his name's sake that he may heal all your diseases. Do you need pardon? His name is Jehovah Tzitkanu, the Lord, our righteousness. Do you need defense and protection? His name is Jehovah Nisi, the Lord, your banner. Seek for his name's sake that his banner of love and grace may be spread over you. Do you need provision in extreme want? His name is is Jehovah Jireh. In the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. The Lord will provide. Do you need his presence? His name is Jehovah Shammah. 
The Lord is there. He is our Emmanuel, God with us. And he goes on and speaks about him being the answer of prayer. Do you need strength? He is the strength of Israel. Do you need comfort? He is the consolation of Israel. Do you need shelter? His name is the city of refuge. Have you nothing and need all? His name is all in all. He is everything to us. His glory, the glory of his name sustains us. Now, you'll recognize in that quote from Erskine that um, some of those names are Christ's names, referring to Isaiah chapter 9 and offices that are mentioned of him. You see, the glory of God's grace in the Old Testament is made to shine even more than in the New Testament. Instead of a temporal theophany passing before one man, Moses, here in chapter 34, God himself has in these last days come down to earth to manifest his rich and glorious grace beyond words. The magnificence of the arrival of the Savior from heaven. The display of the gospel in Christ the Son of God has a surpassing glory in some sense to the Old Testament expressions, as great as those are. I know that this is another whole sermon, but let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This passage in 2 Corinthians 3 and into chapter 4 has the most number of the use of the word doxa in all the Bible of God's glory. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 7, referring to what we have just studied in, in, the, in, in Exodus, Paul writes to the Corinthians, beginning in verse 7, If the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory, so the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpassed it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. There are elements of the Old Testament which were preparatory and temporary. They were shadows awaiting the reality that was to come. And when the sun arises in the New Testament, it does not banish the Old Testament moon, as it were, but gives it its proper luster. The outward glories of the Old Testament show us now the inward glories of Christ Jesus. And that same seeing of glory in the Old Testament is certainly found in the new. If we're encouraged by Moses desiring to see the glory of God, how much more now? When we open the pages of the New Testament and we're greeted with the shepherds with angelic glory around them on the plains and they're bid to go and look upon the face of the Son of God in a manger, born a Savior in Bethlehem, the house of bread. Or to the disciples seeing the skies open on the day that Jesus was baptized and God the Spirit coming down upon him and the words from the heavenly glory saying, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. The New Testament witness says, We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten 
of God, full of grace and truth. We saw Him. We saw His glory. Peter said he was an eyewitness with the others of the majesty of the Lord Jesus in His power and coming on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus is described as the the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. He showed forth the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact image in human form, and that to have seen Him was to have seen the Father. Paul, who saw the glory of Christ on the road to Damascus, shining more brightly than the noonday sun, he said, We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord by the Spirit. The glory of God shines now in the face of Jesus Christ. Here is the connection then between the Old and New Testaments. Same good news, same Savior, same salvation, same glory. Our Westminster Confession of Faith 7.6 says, Under the gospel, when Christ the substance was exhibited, the ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which though fewer in number and administered with more simplicity and less outward glory, yet in them it is held forth in more fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy or power to all nations, both Jews and Gentiles, and is called the New Testament. As we look upon the bread and we look upon the wine, this is not as glorious looking outwardly, is it? Than all of the wonders that you saw in the temple in the Old Testament. You walked into the majesty of the temple and you were awestruck. It was said of Herod's temple in his day, you had not seen beauty until you had seen Herod's temple. Here's the simplicity. And yet the glory in the New Testament is greater and so that goes on, there are not therefore two covenants of grace differing in substance, as so many believe, but one and the same under various dispensations. I mean, think about it for a second, folks. Think of the new covenant advantages that we have. We are all now, as it were, set in the cleft of the rock of our lives. And the majesty and glory that goes before us is the majesty of Christ. Jesus, in his his rich incarnation and life, his death, his resurrection, these things are on the surface of New Testament Scripture. We see Christ now by faith. We see him passing by. We see his glory and what glory it is indeed. All the names of God are applied to him and found in him in this new and living way. I mean, just think of the the greatness of the promises that we find in the New Covenant. Just take Romans chapter 8 alone. Romans 8, which is like the best chapter in the whole Bible, comes out and says what to you? It says, if God did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him give us all things? Jonathan Edwards makes the point, he says, the giving of everything else to you That is, everything in this life, your life, everything that you've ever possessed, everything you ever will possess, and everything that you will have in eternity, everything that God gives to you is not so great as the giving of Jesus to you as Savior. Because it's through the giving of the Savior Jesus that everything else comes. That's the glory. And here's another amazing thing. If God is for you, 
what can be against you? I think there was some of that in the Old Testament. Israel felt that they were protected. But boy, it did not lead to faith oftentimes. Sometimes it doesn't lead to faith in us. But here is this beautiful statement that God is for us. Nobody can be against us. Nothing in this life can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. All the promises of God, all the names of God are yea and amen in Him. So, and as the Old Testament had its glorious name, you can, Bavink brings out this fact, the name of God in the Old Testament is Jehovah. It's that covenant-keeping name. He says, I am that I am is not speaking so much about God's immutability, but speaks about I am faithful to those I intend to save. I'm going to keep you. I'm going to shepherd you. I will never let you go. You shall not want. That's the promise. But the New Testament name is what? Father. Yeah, God is spoken of as a father in the Old Testament, but not like in the New that name comes out. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Uh, we see the Father in the face of Jesus Christ. So that brings us to our third and final point, something that we have left out until this, this juncture, that is seeing the face of God, a surpassing glory that is yet to be. Jehovah tells Moses, we skip this, uh, over this, "'No man shall see my face and live.'" And yet the Lord spoke face to face with Moses in 33.11. No doubt in a lesser way than what we find in chapter 34. He says, you can't see my face in this way, but you can see my face in a lesser way in chapter 33. Now, in these new covenant days, these last days, the Lord has come even closer. The Shekinah glory, as it were, that was hidden somewhat behind the veil has been released in the person of Jesus, that at his death, the veil torn in two from the top to the bottom, speaks of a greater closeness to the Lord. The Lord has come even closer now in our Emmanuel. Old Testament believers could not come into the Holy of Holies. One man, one priest, once a year. But now, you and I, we're worshiping in the heavenlies right now. Our anchor is in the Holy of Holies. You and I, not Jewish for the most part, but Gentiles, not male, but male and female. And not just the free, but the slaves. All are welcomed to enter into the holiest that is above as priests unto God. That's what the incarnation has done. That's what Christ has accomplished on the cross. Nevertheless, it still stands. John 1, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father, He has exegeted Him. He has explained Him. He has revealed Him. Even so, there is not, there's a not yet of glory and seeing the Lord that is still to come. And that's our third point, surpassing glory to be. I has not heard, as we've talked about seeing the glory of God, Moses seeing it revealed to the Old Testament, Jesus revealing it, with all of that still, we have just a glimpse. I has not seen nor ear heard, nor has it so much as entered the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. And what is ours yet to be? We see only by faith now, and as Paul says, in a glass darkly, whom Peter says we have seen, we have not seen, but we love. There is coming 
an eternal weight of glory that is far uh, beyond all comparison when the eternal things that are not presently seen will come to pass. So this is our last point. There's a surpassing glory yet to be which we hope to see. This is affirmed from the Old Testament. Old Job said this, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last I will take, he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. Job said that from ancient times past. David said in Psalm 17, As for me, I will behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. And Jesus in the Beatitudes, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. A future application, no doubt, is there. And Paul, writing in the love chapter, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have also been fully known. But hands down, the greatest verses on the fact that there is yet a glory that is to be seen in eternity must come from 1 John chapter 3. Beloved, see how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So again, folks, we are presented with something of an enigma still. Let's, no one to all eternity is going to see the essence of God. And why is that? Because God is invisible and always will be. Um, He is a spirit, including the deity of Christ. And yet we will certainly see in a way far superior to Moses or the disciples on earth the glory of the Lord. Whatever Moses saw uh, was not the essence of God. It says in Hebrews 11, seeing him who was invisible. That's an interesting phrase. I'm seeing the invisible one. It's taking us away from a literalism at that point. Our eyes are incapable of taking in the invisible God. But our souls, our lives, especially when we are resurrected, body and spirit, we are going to have close, intimate fellowship with the triune God through Jesus Christ, whose humanity, glorified humanity, we will certainly see. But even when we look upon Jesus, we don't see his deity. Physically, we see his Humanity. So, this implies a resurrected, glorified knowledge and communion whose hem we have only begun to touch in the here and the now. Calvin said of this glory that is yet to be, all the eternal happiness of whose excellence the minutest part would scarce be told if all were said that the tongues of all men can say. If we have a sermon that goes on, I asked before, I said, how long do I get to preach today? Oh, got two more minutes. Maybe. Um, we, We could not do anything more than scratch the surface of the glory that is to be revealed to us. On his deathbed, Richard Baxter, who wrote that amazing work, Everlasting Rest, so focused upon 
heaven. He said, you know, if an angel were to come down right now and begin telling us about heaven, how much more would that one angel know than all the theologians and all that they have written since the beginning of time? But even an angel is incapable of communicating to us the riches of that place until we come there and are fitted in our new bodies, perfected for the immediate presence of God. That's what we look forward to. Ezekiel Hopkins describes heaven in this beautiful way, where the unveiled glories of the deity shall beat full upon us, and we forever sun ourselves in the smiles of God. That's what is coming. We close with this tasty reminder that your best days are yet ahead of you. You know that, I hope. So many of us are just like the worldlings. We're kind of looking, oh, my best days are behind me. I'm getting older now. Quit whining. Your best days are ahead. One of the Puritans wrote a, uh, wrote a beautiful uh, series called the, the Believer's Last Day, His Best Day, and talked about what's going to happen when we breathe our last. Your best is yet to come. You've had just a little bit in this life of the goodness and greatness of God, although all of it is already yours. Who can measure the happiness of heaven, asks Augustine, where no evil at all can touch us, no good will be out of reach, where life is to be one long, laud, extolling God who will be all in all, where there will be no weariness to call for rest, no need to call for toil, no place for any energy but praise. In heaven, all glory will be true glory, since no one could ever err in praising too little or too much. Perfect peace will reign, since nothing in ourselves or in any others will disturb this peace. God will be the source of every satisfaction, more than any heart can rightly crave, more than life and health, food and wealth, glory and honor, peace and every good, so that God, as Paul said, may be all in all. He will be the consummation of all our desiring the object of our unending vision, of our unlessening love, of our unwearying praise. And in this gift of vision, the beatific vision, this response of love, this peon of praise, all alike will share as all will share in everlasting life. Dear ones, up with faith. We see in the past how God revealed himself to Moses and through his son, Jesus Christ. Up with love. If God has so loved us that he sent his only begotten son into the world, not to judge us, again, demonstrating grace, but rather to save us from our sins, let his love uh, kindle our love in response. And then likewise, up with hope. Though we can't yet see or taste or enjoy fully what is coming, we have a foretaste. And we are to live in the light of that hope. How much is that hope being an anchor to you right now? that you're anticipating the full glory of God. That should whet your appetite to enjoy His glory now as much as you can and to long for the day when He brings you into His presence. All praise be to the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your mercies to us. Thank You for Your glory manifested in this way. Such a wonderful God You are, a God who is beyond our richest thoughts, infinite, eternal, unchangeable. We cannot put you in a box. Lord, forgive us for not seeing your greatness um, in this world that you have created. But these things, Lord, lead us to the foot of the, th- 
of the cross and what you've done for us in a way of grace and mercy. We pray, Lord, your blessings upon us that we would uh, feast upon your mercies this day as we ready our hearts for the Lord's Supper. And we pray, Lord, that we would live in hope uh, of our coming Redeemer. Help us, Lord, as you're redeemed, to lift our heads heavenward, to fix our hearts on things above and not on things of the earth. For, Lord Jesus, you have died, and we have died with you, and we have a new life begun, which you will not be satisfied until it is fulfilled when we are glorified like you. We thank you and bless you for the wonders of your glory this day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.